Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Catherine Butler, with a Christian physician's review of the very popular book, Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity. So anybody reading this book, I would just be very cautious. If you come to any recommendations that are outside of practice and outside of what your own doctor recommends. Catherine Butler, coming up in a few minutes. Before we talk with Dr. Catherine Butler, a quick update about what's happening on the ground in Lahaina, Maui, following that horrific fire. My guest is Major Troy Trimmer, the Salvation Army's Divisional Commander for the Hawaiian and Pacific Islands Division. Major Trimmer, I understand the Salvation Army had staff and offices in Lahaina, Maui. How did they fare during the fire? The Salvation Army's been in Maui since 1894, so we've been an integral part of the community, uh, serving our friends, families, neighbors, Ohana of Hawaii for a lot of years, did have a significant ministry um, right there in Lahaina, which uh, we believe through all of the aerial photos, we've been respectful not to go into the red zone, but through all the aerial photos, we have pretty good confirmation that we've lost all of our property, including the, the Corps officer and Salvation Army uh, Corps officers, our pastors and the administrators of uh, the Salvation Army oper- operations. So. Yeah, we've lost all of our property, but our people from day one, including the night of evacuation, uh, were able to get out safely and get to our Pahalui Corps, and then was, were able to start serving their neighbors. Mm, so you lost the property, but you, the officers, the Salvation Army personnel there are okay? Yes. Yeah, we have a limited uh, amount of personnel, and they were all, they're all safe, right? And I thank the Lord for that. Mm-hmm. Well, the Salvation Army... My understanding is uh, Major Trimmer is very active there on Maui in the Lahaina area in helping those residents which were affected by that terrible fire. What, what can you tell us about what the Salvation Army is doing? So the Salvation Army in mass disasters uh, responds by first and foremost taking care of the uh, physical sustenance of individuals mm-hmm. and the spiritual sustenance of individuals. So uh, since the beginning of this disaster, uh, we've done over 170,000 meals coordinated on the ground. Uh, Salvation Army itself has been responsible for 32,000 of those meals, but uh, one of our main roles in disaster is the coordination of meals. And so uh, working with partners, other VOAD members, uh, other churches uh, have been able to facilitate over 170,000 and and going and continuing to add to that number. Well, obviously the needs are huge, and can you give us a little bit of an idea? Obviously we're we're watching the news and, and so on, but you're there. Can you give us an idea of the scope of the needs? The scope of the needs are genuine. I mean, candidly, uh, a good portion, I think roughly, you know, estimated 9,800 uh, potential families, you know, having to relocate or, or taken serious mm-hmm. looks at, at what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the need is significant. Obviously, the emotional and spiritual needs of the community are, are great. Uh, so... Um, Salvation Army tries to make sure we practice the ministry of presence and being with people and talking story and and hearing where they're at and and offering prayer if they're if they're willing to pray and desire and if not we'll just sit with them and and be silent almost like uh, Job's friends. Uh, hopefully at the end of that, um, you know, we're received a little better than Job's friends were sometimes, but but really find the ministry of presence important. And then of course, ultimately these families will have to rebuild their lives. Mm. So. Um, they were in congregant shelters and now in non-congregant settings, so they don't necessarily have a lot of place to start rebuilding the, the material possessions that, that, that they may have lost at this point. 
um, but making sure that they're fed well, that they're housed well, that they're um, encouraged and they have somebody around them to help them know that they don't go through this alone are, are significant. By the way, I'm speaking with Major Troy Tremor. He is the Salvation Army's Divisional Commander for the Hawaiian and Pacific Island Divisions. What about other Christian ministries, other nonprofits? I mean, there must be a huge presence there, Major Tremor, of, of those groups. Yeah, there is a huge presence. You know, um, um, New Life, um, Mercy Chefs, uh, Billy Graham uh, organization that, you know, there's, there's a plethora. The one thing about the Christian church as a whole is um, we've always been known for uh, following close after after the Savior and and uh, following up in his footsteps and walking in grace and trying to come alongside of other people in grace. Um, and so it's evident within Maui. Um, it's evident within any, any situation and disaster. Um, followers of Christ are, are following him in service of others. How would you like us to pray? Well, obviously, we want to pray for long-term healing and restoration for all of the individuals of Maui and the decisions they have to make, that they'd be guided by wisdom and have good counsel, and that uh, good people would be around them in the process. Uh, we want to pray for restoration of not only Lahaina, but but of the Maui, of Maui as a whole. Uh, and for the Salvation Army, we want to pray wisdom and discernment. We want to pray discernment on the next right steps. It's going to be a long recovery process, and Salvation Army will be there. We've been there since the late 1800s, and we'll be there ongoing, probably until the Lord returns, uh, Lord willing. Um, and so we need wisdom and direction and discernment from, from the hand of God on the, the right next steps. Uh, a lot of opportunities come, but not all opportunities are right um, for us to, to invest in people. So we want to make sure that we have the right opportunities to invest in people, and we want to make sure that we're honorable to those who've entrusted us to not only steward people's lives, but also steward the resources that we've been entrusted with. That was Major Troy Trimmer, the Salvation Army's Divisional Commander for the Hawaiian and Pacific Islands Division. If you'd like more information, go to hawaii.salvationarmy.org. Dr. Peter Adia's book, Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity, is extremely popular. Today, we talk with trauma surgeon turned writer and homeschooling mom, Dr. Catherine Butler, to discuss her Gospel Coalition piece reviewing Dr. Adia's book titled, Can Preventative Medicine Become the Fountain of Youth? Dr. Butler, what made you want to review Dr. Peter Adia's book, Outlive? To be perfectly candid, the TGC editors reached out to me, and mm. it was because this book has just become so wildly popular. Um, it's been on the New York Times seller list, like number one, for weeks and weeks and weeks, which is unusual given its length. It's a 500-word tome, and much of it involves descriptions of pathophysiology. So there was this intrigue of why is a, a book like this that's so thick um, become so wildly popular. And so that was that was what we set out to find out. <laughs> and how popular is it? Tremendously. Like I said, it's been number one on the New York Times for several months now. Um, and part of it is because Dr. Atia does have a very robust um, online following. So he's got a really strong platform. But I really started to wonder reading through it because most of the recommendations are and actionable things that he recommends are things that most of us have heard in elementary school health class in terms of hmm. exercise and eat well and make sure you sleep and avoid stress. I don't think any of that is new. Um, I think that we tend to gravitate towards these kinds of books because we're looking for some kind of solution to help us avoid what is inevitable for all of us this side of the fall, which is aging 
and ultimately illness and death. Mm -hmm. And I find if you think about through history, there's just been this fascination with cures for our own mortality, you know, and things that have cropped up in mythology, the elixir of life and the fountain of youth and tales that are woven about seeking them out. That idea persists. You know, if you look at um, the anti-aging market, so products that are meant to take away wrinkles and, you know, improve your health. I looked it up today and it's a $63 billion industry. And I think it just taps into this fact that all of us, even though the the wages of sin is death, all of us have an innate urge to try to avoid it and defy it. And I think that does contribute to the popularity of this book. And I do want to ask you about specifics in the book, but you make a point early on in your review that uh, this appeals to our desire to think that we've taken, or we can take, I mean, to some extent we can, control of our own health, but then also our own life, our own destiny, rather than trusting the Lord. It's it's, it's something that we, we can kind of be the captain of our own ship. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the garden. You know, we, Adam, any of our predecessors didn't trust what God told them. No, I think I can do this my own way. And we're doing the same thing. You know, God has said, you have eternal life through Christ. I've swallowed up death in victory through Christ. I've given you the way. Yes, you'll die, but you'll be raised again in him. And we say, no, I want to figure this out from myself somehow. (laughs) I think it's the same urge. Well, what can you tell us about Dr. Peter Atia before we uh, dive into the contents? Uh, Obviously, he's a medical doctor, but uh, what else is he known for? His background is interesting. Um, I don't know him personally, I should say this. He went into general surgery. So I should preface and say that I identified and I under I could resonate with a lot of his experience because our training is very similar. He did three years of general surgery training at Johns Hopkins and did a research fellowship at the NIH um, and then decided not to continue his residency. He was very frustrated with the approach of medicine that seeks to fix problems, but not prevent them at the source. And so then he he's doesn't was not board certified, but he was able to obtain a license. You can do that without finishing residency training. And then has built uh, a following through really in the Silicon Valley area, hmm. um, appealing to uh, different techniques and ideas about how can we improve our longevity. Um, and some of the things he recommends are very matter of fact, that you would be able to have the same recommendations from any primary care doctor. Others are much more experimental. Uh, and I have actually some, they give me pause that he would recommend them without better evidence. But he seeks to, as he claims, um, help people live longer and better. Uh, and his his claims, he'll say that he does not want to be come across as offering the elixir of youth. And he talks about us, you know, history has shown us that people who promise that are quacks and charlatans. But he does say, you know, I, if you follow what I've written in this book, you can expand your life by potentially two decades and mm. feel, you know, one decade younger. And that's a pretty big claim. <laughs> um, so yeah. I think he is tapping into some of that ethos that we all have of wanting to extend our lives and beat death and live longer, um, which is fascinating. Uh, I want to ask you uh, to define a word that you use in your review. Uh, obviously, he's, you mentioned it's a 500-page book, and you said he gives descriptions of pathophysiology, uh, not a word that most of us uh, use every day <laughs> or are familiar with, but w- <laughs> sure. w- what is that? 
So physiology is the body systems and how they all work. Pathophysiology is what goes wrong with them. Mm. So pathophysiology is a fancy word of saying disease. And he appropriately takes the stance of looking at medicine over time, how medicine focused very much on infectious disease. So the, the big uh, advancements you've had in medicine first begin with, con- with combating viruses and bacteria and developing antibiotics, which has led to a, a tremendous improvement in mortality. But he notes appropriately that since then, tend to die not from diseases, at least in um, the more affluent parts of the world, uh, but from chronic illness. Mm. So stroke, um, diabetes, um, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and cancer. And so he he tries to focus on saying, what can we do to try to prevent these diseases, which with the exception of heart disease, which we've had tremendous improvement in outcomes with uh, the advent of catheterization, so placing stents in the heart arteries. Um, we haven't made huge headway in preventing them. And so that's what he's tackling, which is very reasonable. The thing is, though, that as far as we can tell, the th- they prevent them, as far as we know now, are just basic lifestyle changes. <laughs> and so <laughs> the things that we know we should be doing all along, but don't because life gets in the way, that's really how to prevent these things. So there's not too much revolutionary on that front. It's interesting, too. You said he has a practice focused on longevity. And I I mean, that's not something you typically see on, uh, you know, in the uh, medical buildings. And, you know, you you see next to some of them, you know, cardiology and pediatrics, longevity. Is it is it a fairly recent uh, kind of a field? It's not really a it's a boutique practice. He has he's a private practitioner and charges he's not covered by insurance people who have a special interest in them can seek a consultation with him and he sees them in his own private office it's not a broad specialty it's it's a boutique interest that he has and you make another interesting point or another interesting um observation in your piece can preventative medicine become the fountain of youth that it's uh, his book the popularity of it is part of that fascination with immortality which i guess is something that human beings have been fascinated with forever, but is it is it of a particular interest? Do you see it some, some places in our culture where it is really obviously uh, people are pursuing that? He uh, tends to have a client base that's um, predominantly among the wealthy and Silicon Valley, um, people who can afford this. And what I found most interesting actually was at the very end of the book where he talks about why do all this. Mm-hmm. And his own background is that he started becoming interested in longevity because he was afraid of death. And it's evolved since then to he uh, wants to be able to live well for his family and to love them well. Um, but I, I think it's it's interesting. And what is what are the motivations of those of us who come seeking this? You know, And I think as Christians, it's important to realize it should be for stewardship. So if we're seeking wellness and health, it should be because from First Corinthians, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and we're seeking to honor our body. By doing that, we honor the Lord. Um, and always keeping in mind that our chief end is not to escape death and not for our own self-aggrandizement, but to and you know to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so anything we do should be under that vein. It's very easy to slide into a pretense of I, I'm the master of my own destiny and I can control all these factors and extend my life because maybe I'm afraid or maybe because I 
able to live forever. These sort of, if you will, lifestyle changes or interventions that people have, have, been, have been aware of for years, uh, exercising, eating well, sleeping, taking care of your stress levels and all of that, um, is that all part of, from a Christian or a biblical perspective, part of glorifying God by attending to those things? I mean, you don't want to be legalistic or slavish, but on the other hand, what, what about that? I think absolutely. I think it makes sense to um, to nourish ourselves well, to do what we can to prevent chronic disease so that we can be good stewards of our bodies and also be well enough to do the work that God's placed before us, you know, and I think, but I think it should be out of that vein, out of saying, okay, okay, body is a gift. Let me steward this gift well. And knowing that the Lord has a purpose for me and for me to be able to participate in the work that he's, you know, ordained for me ahead of time, I need to make sure that I've got the stamina to do it and that I'm well enough to do it. I'm not in the hospital all the time. You know, those, that's a very honorable thing. I think it's just important to keep it in the right place and not make an idol of it. Well, you mentioned earlier, Dr. Butler, the uh, claim that he makes in the book, where uh, on one hand, he, he says, um, those that are looking for the elixir of life, I mean, they're, he, he's saying that, basically saying that there isn't such a thing. And yet, he says, by following some of what he says, you can potentially extend your lifespan by a decade and your health span by two. Can you talk about that? And what is a health span? <laughs> Yeah, uh, he means health span means that your your functional capacity. So, if you are seventy years old, you're actually as fit as a fifty year old is what he's saying by health span. I mean that you're able to actively participate in the things you love, and that's a very big claim. Um, and I think it's hard to actually study what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I think anybody reading books like this should just be very aware and take things with a, a grain of salt and always be talking to your doctor about what he or she recommends for you and to try to steward your health well, um, but not to f- get lulled into any promises that there is a cure akin to the elixir of life. If I just drink this or I do this, everything will be great. Um, there isn't any. Well, how helpful would you say his insights are? In other words, is there anything really new, and I do want to get in just a moment to things that you, you that are, are, are kind of questionable in there or, or cautions, but is there anything particularly new in this book? He talks about a lot of research that's actually animal-based, so things that might be useful in the future. Um, he talks about the role of rifampin as an anti-inflammatory that potentially could prolong life. Uh, it, it's a lot of things that are still very early in research. He talks about about looking at centenarians, so people who live into their hundreds, and looking at population studies of those individuals and what is the same among them. And there's actually nothing the same among them Mm lifestyle-wise. People who live to their hundreds often do the opposite of what we'd recommend, diet and exercise, which suggests there's a genetic component to their longevity that we're not seeing yet. So he raises a lot of interesting concepts that may prove to be helpful in the future. As of now, there's nothing revolutionary that we have very hard data to say, yes, this is really critical. Um, so it's interesting from that perspective. I think I think for lay people, what is helpful is the understanding he gives when I say pathophysiology of these processes that make us sick occur over time. And so for instance, you don't wake up with heart disease that was not there the day before. It's a process that develops over years, and it's likely developing before we can actually detect it. 
in the doctor's office. And so that the lifestyle choices we make do have an impact down the road and you might feel fine, but that doesn't mean that you're not putting down cholesterol in your arteries that are then going to lead to high blood pressure and heart attacks. So that I think is actually very useful to help people understand that it's not like catching a cold when you develop heart disease. You don't have it one, not have it one day and then have it the next. It's something that develops over time. And that I think is very useful. I think the um, urgings to steward our bodies well through exercise and diet, that is very helpful, although I suspect that's something that a lot of people know, but they can glean helpful information from it. Um, but there's not a whole lot. I was, I wound up when, as I was reading it, thinking there's nothing to the sun <laughs> right. because a lot of it for a doctor, a lot of everything was very familiar. And for a lay person, like a lot of the recommendations I think are things that they know already. And he makes a particular stress, and you you, you touched on this earlier uh, to your emotional and mental health, and you kind of had to get through quite a bit of the book to get to that, where he talks about uh, he had some outbursts of anger and some different things, which uh, he, obviously he realized if he had continued, it would have affected his, uh, well, his family, his practice, and all of that, and so just leading him to realize without good relationships, without attending to the mental and uh, emotional health, uh, you can have wonderful physical health, but these other th this other aspect can really uh, derail exactly. everything else. And I think that's actually a huge thing. I'm glad he addressed it, but I think it actually deserves even a bigger stage because many of us know the right thing to do. We don't because we're dealing with so much else in life mm -hmm. and we we are not sleeping because there's so much to do or because we're anxious. I mean, life gets in the way. Yep. And, and I think that is probably the crux of why a lot of us uh, are not able to keep up with the things that we know we should do um, is because we're in a fallen, broken world and we're finite and we can't handle a lot of what's thrown at us. Well put. Well, Dr. Katie Butler, Catherine Butler is my guest today on His People. She's a trauma surgeon. We've talked to her before. She has written a number of books, uh, Between Life and Death and Others. Uh, she has a, a kids' fantasy series as well. We're talking about her uh, review of Dr. Peter Adia's book, Outlive, the Science and Art of Longevity. Her piece at the Gospel Coalition is, Can Preventative Medicine Become the Fountain of youth. And you, you uh, said there are some questionable things in there. You've touched on some of them, Dr. Butler, but one of them is uh, what he has to write about the Hippocratic Oath. And I'm wondering, most people have heard of it, but it, what is the Hippocratic Oath? And then what is it that he said that's kind of questionable for you? Sure. So the Hippocratic Oath is an oath that all medical students take. And it's a pledge that first, and when we, pra when we practice medicine, we do no harm which means that we acknowledge that our treatments have the potential to incur injury. And so when we give any kind of treatment, we better make sure that it's going to help and minimize hurt. Uh, Dr. Adia has an open disdain for that, calls it an expletive in the book. Hmm. The Hippocratic he Oath. Said, yes. He thinks that it is not worthy of our attention. And he, he left surgical residency, like I said, he didn't finish in part because he felt like there was too uh, little attention to, there was too much reticence to do something. Um, that's actually a very common, and this is entirely anecdotal, common sentiment I find early in residency training that you grow out of is, is see more and more. <laughs> so mm. residency training is five years in surgery. He did three. I, I wonder if he'd have the same opinion if he then was operating more during those last two years. Mm. But um, he gives this example 
of in his whole premise is saying that we don't do enough to prevent disease. And that's reasonable. But we still better make sure, and this is what the Hippocratic Oath protects against, that the recommendations that we give are not going to cause harm unnecessarily. So he, and this is something that they pick up on, but the example he gives, he talks about a young man who came into the emergency room with a gunshot wound or a stab wound to the chest, and he'd lost his pulse, and he opened the chest in the trauma bay to save this individual and said, sometimes doing nothing is the worst thing you could do because this person would have died. But that's not the do no harm principle. That was standard practice. That's what guidelines tell us to do. The do no harm principle protected this individual from a scenario where his chest was open when he didn't need it. <laughs> so do no harm in the Hippocratic Oath means if someone comes into the emergency room and has an injury, but talking and doing okay, you don't then open their chest. It's those kinds of rash treatments or decisions that the Hippocratic Oath protects us from. And my concern is that because he doesn't agree with this principle, he recommendations throughout the book, not based on solid data. So he recommends that people should take statins, which are a cholesterol-lowering drug, before their cholesterol gets high. And his rationale here is, well, they're really important in lowering your cholesterol. So the sooner you go, since since heart disease is a process, the sooner you go on them, the better. Hmm. The problem is we don't have data to back that up. And what we see throughout in medicine is that the very fact that aspirin used to be something that was, di- was prescribed widely um, when you reached a certain age, for that reason to prevent heart attack, is actually no longer recommended because what we found was even though aspirin is crucial to prevent you from having a heart attack after you've already had one, if we give it to you as a primary preventative measure when you've not had a heart attack before, it doesn't reduce your rate of heart attack and it actually causes more incidents of bleeding that are harmful. Out of a idea of doing no harm, we now no longer recommend that you take aspirin routinely if Mm. you have no history of heart disease. So that's just one example. And so anybody reading this book, I would just be very cautious. If you come to any recommendations that are outside of practice and outside of what your own doctor recommends, because he, I think, um, doesn't appreciate the kind of injury that we can incur and inflict on people when we recommend treatments that really don't have data supporting them. Everything we do in medicine, if it's indicated, yes, we'll recommend it. But if we're not clear of the benefit, then we can really do harm to people. And what you just said, Dr. Brautler, anything within medicine has the, did you say, potential to hurt? Everything, everything we do. And I, I have seen, I saw, had one individual who developed a cardiac abscess from a routine line that was placed the day before he was supposed to go home. He needed antibiotics at home. He developed an infection of his heart and needed open heart surgery. Mm. Everything we do has a potential side effect. And in we have studies and we have a process of evidence-based medicine to make sure that we limit that harm as much as we can. Um, but it's foolhardy to take up practices for which we don't have good data showing that it helps. Well, toward the end of the book, uh, Dr. Peter Attia, uh, his book, Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity, he, I think you, you said something to the effect that he asked the, the most important or the key question in the book, why should we seek longevity? And I'm wondering if you can kind of characterize how he answers it and then uh, from a, a perspective of a Christian physician, what, what you would say. He was suggesting that it needs to be... Uh, 
it has to have their own personal reason why and finding meaning and longevity should be in the the setting of what is meaningful to you um i would say for a christian it's to steward our bodies well for god's glory and to recognize that our bodies are temples of the holy spirit and not to escape death because death is the wages of our sin and comes to all of us but instead so that we can live well and best serve in the work that god's given us Preventative medicine is a potential tool by which we can steward well the gifts that God's given us, but it is no elixir of life. That elixir only comes from Christ. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guests, Major Troy Trimmer of the Salvation Army and trauma surgeon Dr. Catherine Butler, author of The Peace, Can Preventative Medicine Become the Fountain of Youth? You can read it by going to thegospelcoalition.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Philip Ryken with a fascinating examination of beauty in the Christian life. Beauty is not merely subjective. It is not in the eye of the beholder with a small b, but I think it is in the eye of the beholder with a capital B because God says there is beauty. He himself is beautiful. He is our standard for beauty. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.